Welcome back, good people of the world, to Gap with Gwen. We have a new guest. We have Sam in the building. Oh, not in the building. We're social distancing. How are you, Sam? Doing well. How are you? Good. Thank you. So this is the third time I've had a guest from Twitter. You guys know I love Twitter. Follow me at Gab with Gwen on Twitter. And I actually follow a bot that's called Starting a Podcast. And I saw your tweet uh, retweeted and that you were starting a podcast. And I can't recall what you had said. But I think maybe you said you were interested in being a guest. And I was like, hey, I have a podcast. Would you want to be a guest? And here we are. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, that tweet was um, to uh, to sort of let people know that I was thinking of starting a podcast and that I was open to, you know, appearing on, you know, as a guest on on podcast. And you reached out to me, which I really appreciated. And um, here I am. Yeah. So happy to do it. Thank you. Sam and I spoke for five minutes before, guys. So trust me, like, if you listen to this podcast, you know I don't do a lot of prep. So we didn't do any prep. (laughs) So we hear an accent. Everyone has an accent. Clearly, mine is very New York. But where are you from, Sam? Um, I was born in Nigeria. uh, Moved to the United States um, pretty much to start college. And did my, you know, undergrad at Ohio. um, And grad school there as well. lived in Australia for a couple of years and, um, you know, back here. So the accent is, I would say, probably primarily Nigerian, but infused with a lot of other things. So, yeah, it's kind of a mix. And it's funny because I get, you know, I get all sorts of guesses when I, when I meet people. And they say, oh, you know, I, the last one I got was like, you're from like East London or something. And I was like, what? What, what are you talking about? I've never been there. But uh, <laughs> so, so it's the mix. Um, I don't, I actually don't know what it sounds like. I couldn't tell you, um, depending on who I'm talking to, certain things come out. You know, if I'm talking to my parents, for example, it goes very Nigerian. Mm-hmm. And if I'm talking to people from here, it sounds different. So I, I couldn't tell you. I have no control over it, but. It's just how it flows. So, yeah. Get it. We all code switch in some capacity, you know, depending on our point of reference. Right. So totally get it. So first of all, shout out to him from, from Nigeria. You guys yep, know we, we talk about <laughs> Nigeria in different like little comments for different reasons on this podcast. One yeah. reason. One reason, number one, I did the DNA test where they have like these Ancestry 23andMe. Right. And I am 65% Nigerian. What? Yes. Unbelievable. Whoa. (laughs) Which is is actually strangely high. That's not typical. I have to be honest. I mean, I'm not African-American. I have different African-American friends who've taken the test, and I've seen it. Everyone has, like, Nigerian. It's never that high. Jamaicans even are not that high. My family and then me, between me and my two parents, it just came out that... I am like super Nigerian, so it's sixty-five. It's pretty up there. Um, you're gonna have to go to Nigeria, I'm afraid. You're gonna have to visit. That is a really high number. Wow. Very wow. high. And and I took wow. three tests, so just you know, I haven't even said this on the podcast before. <laughs> I took I did twenty-three and me. I did my heritage. I did ancestry. Actually, I did four. And there's another one called, I think, family tree DNA. All of them consistent. 65 percent Nigerian wow 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 amazing yeah I mean yeah it just I mean it just goes to show you doesn't it that um you know if you know 
it, it one it confirms the you know the the origin of you know sort of the diaspora the black diaspora across the world and it just goes to show you that you know there's a lot more commonality um in in the black experience um than than sort of the world is is letting us to believe you know so um that that's very interesting i'll tell you a quick story here um while i was in college i um actually went to brazil um on a on a research um trip and and it was a cultural kind of a cultural geography research um which is weird because i'm a scientist and i don't do anything in geography but you know i went you know free trip to brazil why not so um while I was there, I, um, I visited a state called Bahia. Uh, Bahia is uh, is a state on the eastern um, eastern coast of Brazil, mm-hmm. and it happens to be um, one of the states that had the most influx of um, of West uh, West African slaves during the during the slave trade, and it was so it was such a um, it was such an enlightening experience for me because. Um, Coming from Nigerian origin and living um, living now in the states and sort of meeting people that would try and consider themselves the the Nigerian elite or or, or, or the educated people, there is this sentiment that you know you want to move away from the traditions mm-hmm. and a lot of the culture and become more you know Americanized or Anglicized. I mean, Nigeria was colonized by the UK, so there's heavy um, Every British influence, everyone wants to sound polished, you know, they're moving away from the religion and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And here are these folks who were moved over probably 300 plus years ago, and they're trying their best to preserve the culture. They have museums, they, they, they have the same food, you know, that, that, that their ancestors had. Um, there's a whole city that celebrates um the culture for example my my culture in nigeria is called the yorubas and mm. and in bahir the, i mean the whole state the this, this city called Salvador is just dedicated to yoruba culture you know the, the dressing the food the music the dancing and it was just you know it just blew my mind because i thought about back home and how people are trying to get away from it and it's like you know we're going to be more posh we're going to be more educated like for example i didn't speak the language um really until i was in you know high school because you know my parents didn't want me to speak it because you know you want to be considered you want to go to s school so you have to have this level of spoken english or written english and everything is dedicated to that you know so and then you go to a different place and they're fighting for that they're fighting to keep that because for them it was uh, you know the the movement was tearing away them from their root from their homeland and they've, they've they've been pretty successful actually over that amount of time to keep that tradition and um it was just it was just an eye-opening experience for me because i went wow you know the more you the more you go away from something the more you appreciate it and people who are in it are just you know they don't care so so the, the whole division in black attitude is not what it's not what it looks like it is um there's a lot more commonality in where we're from and how we should tackle the current issues that are around us um instead of looking at it from a localized point of view and and I believe it's it's a bit difficult sometimes but it's more likely 
that we're going to succeed if we come together as a as a group and tackle the commonalities first. I think I think that's that was kind of the point of the whole story. Really, it it brought it to view to me that wow, we're a lot more similar than we think we are. Yeah, no, you said a lot of interesting points, and I can relate. My sister's been to Bahia. She's told me several times I need to go, oh. and I would say doing the DNA test. I went down, actually, when I the podcast stopped at that point, I was at one point going to switch gears and just do a podcast dedicated to this because there are so many lessons and things that I have learned, and I will at some point have some episodes dedicated to it. The It cool. became pretty obvious. You know, we know through history books, you know, there was a triangle slave trade and that people were at different stops. They went to the Caribbean first and... Um, to the south of the United States and just through the nature of the trade families were broken apart. So we've Mm -hmm. always known that we all have African roots, West African roots and there's a relationship. With the DNA testing, you know, and people doing it, it is so clear and eerie, right? Because you're like, wow, I'm related to all of these people who I don't know, fourth cousins, fifth cousins. We all share DNA and we don't know how. And it's different, you know, and this is important because a lot of white people, people of European descent, you know, they may have family trees and things that they can go back from generations from, you know, when they first came from Europe. But we we can't, you know, we can't for people in the Western hemisphere, especially African-Americans, West Indians, people from the Caribbean, Afro-Latinos, we can't do it. But we're all related. So for me, doing these tests, I knew my roots are deep in Jamaica, in Cuba, I knew that all of these Puerto Ricans were my cousins. It's And for me, it's just so funny because a lot of times there will be people who are Afro-Latino, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans who deny their blackness or heritage but I'm like okay well I'm related to you right and <laughs> and a lot of so many African Americans just I knew that but it's fascinating because then you're like how where did it get split right you know who right you, you don't know and then because my DNA is so high like I'm actually so genetically I'm 95% West African 5% European so I'm, I'm pretty like pretty close you know most right. people are not you know most people in the Americas are maybe 75 85% African but I'm like very high mm-hmm. um, and so in my in my dad's family some of it is I know why my dad's family are Maroon descendants so the Maroons were slaves who fought and broke away and because they fought so much the British got tired and just let them have their own independent communities in the hills so while there was still slavery going on they had these independent villages in the the hills like the mountains of Jamaica which they just let them be autonomous they were supposed to if anyone escaped send them back I don't know if they did or not but because of that there is you know people who are more stronger African descent. There are different maroon communities throughout the Americas. So I think there's on Florida, they call them, in Spanish, it's Cimarron. Um, it's called Seminole, I think, Seminoles in the U.S. So there always were little breakaway communities. So this is where you have this high percentage. The interesting thing is that I tested like my whole like tons of people in my family. I paid for their tests. I did it. My grandmother, my mom's mom, her DNA, they're able to like pinpoint a city in wow. Nigeria <laughs> that she's from. Do you, do you know the city? <laughs> I do. You know, let me, I'm going to pull it up while we're talking and I'll let you know uh, awesome. because I told the Nigerian guy at work, I was like, this is so weird. It's so weird. And so I've also, there are people who live in Nigeria who are my matches as well. And 
I haven't contacted them because I don't. It's such a weird conversation to me. We, how's anyone going to know how we're related? Right. How, how, how are we going to know? Oh, that's that's so. I mean, I mean, that's so amazing. Um, that you know they are able to, and I don't know exactly what goes into it. I mean, did you have to submit any? Like blood samples or any any identifying information. It's like saliva. How... It's saliva. Oh, it's saliva. Okay, yeah. so yeah, yeah, you did mention it's DNA. You're right, right, right. Wow, yeah, that's that's amazing that um that they were going they, they were able to pinpoint it with that level of um, specificity. But that's 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 impressive. Yeah, they can um, they yeah. can do it by different groups. So I have a friend who's Haitian. They can say, oh, your DNA looks like you're from Haiti. I've had I have a cousin. I didn't know his mother was from Saint Lucia, and so. So his results came in and I said, this says St. Lucia. And he's like, oh yeah, my mom is from there. I said, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> so I guess well, they can go. tell the groupings of African slaves and when they, you know, I guess, you know, they become different DNA markers in the mm-hmm. different areas. It is fascinating. They do it in the U.S. too. They can say, oh, you look like you're from Virginia settlers. You look like this. They actually have been able to do that. It's, it's actually the most fascinating thing. But, um, to bring it back to the shared experience, it's like, so yes, we have a shared experience. It's unfortunate through colonialism. I mean, honestly, this is where the divide and conquer mentality, I think, also has taken root, where we become very rooted in our own specific culture. You know, there's also an element of tribalism where, you know, it's like, well, I only care about being African-American. There's, you know, this ADOS movement. There's mm. African descent descent of slavery the west indians you know we kind of stay to ourselves the afro latinos are just even acknowledging that they're afro latinos a lot of them now so and then obviously with that west africa is a different country a different tribe all of these things so we're so divided it is unfortunate and i we i've talked about that on different episodes you should listen to the ados one we right. we've talked about that a lot and it, it is hard to overcome because some of these divisions then have real manifestations right where the communities are at loggerheads where the communities aren't walking in lockstep i do think that you're you make a great point the afro latinos not all of them so i guess i'm excluding you dominicans because i always shade you on here and so i'm going to shade you again um <sighs> But I do, like, Cubans have done a really good job of preserving their cultures, a lot of Brazilians as well. And it's interesting how they did it. And I can say them compared to the English-speaking Caribbean. They did it because the Spanish and the Portuguese colonizers really subjugated them to be Catholic. But what they did oftentimes was just use the Catholic saints and the, the basically the saints, they would just transpose the African ones underneath it right so you would have like uh i don't know saint paul saint mary whoever it is and then they would use like an african deity that they knew that they would actually replace it with secretly so that the colonizers the slave masters didn't know that they were still keeping their tradition so they actually did a really excellent job in a lot of ways in the afro-latino culture in in the west indian culture we we have remnants but in, in our language especially in patois in the different Creoles, but in Haiti, especially, I would say. But so you see the African remnants in the Caribbean and Latin America as well. Traditions from 400 years that, you know, people Mm -hmm. have managed to keep, even though it's, there are multiple groups. You can probably do a DNA test and you're probably 100% or 99% Nigerian. (laughs) Everyone else is a bunch of different African countries because of just the nature of slavery, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, colonialism is really the root of, you know, everything, even, you know, the, you know, the, the things that are going on here in America are really um, a legacy of colonialism, if we look at it. Um, that's what really started the whole thing. And the, the, the idea of colonialism was really, like you said, divide and conquer. And, um, you know, the, the continent of Africa was broken up. Um, there were mismatches of, mismatches of tribes together that were forced into a country. And on the other hand, homogeneous tribes were then divided into separate, uh, separate countries. So it was just a complete disregard for the, for the social structures that were there before. Um, the, most of the continent was, um, got their independence in the 50s and 60s. And the division of these countries between um, Britain and France and Germany and Portugal you know, was done in some in some meeting in Europe, like you know, with no regard for for really the social structures that were in there. So, the division and tribalism has been sort of, I guess, the the negative energy has sort of been created already by 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 some of the legacies of colonialism, by the division that has been put forth in the in the bringing up of, of these countries, you know, um, and um, for example, in Nigeria, we have three different main ethnic groups, as it were, or language speaking groups. And, um, you know, these major groups are really nations of their own, you know, they, they have their own language, they have their own culture, you know, they have their own ways of doing things, they have their own religion. And prior to colonialism, they had been, you know, functioning independently. And post-colonialism, they've been brought together as one country. Right. And they've, they're forced to coexist. And it's just been a complete grind since, you know, since independence. And that is the root of all the problems um, in Africa currently. Because, um, for example, as, as I said, in Nigeria, like to even have a government is a problem because if someone comes from the, you know, so, so the country is broadly divided into three, the north, the east, and the west. You can have two people, two successive governments from the north, for example. The east and the west is not going to take it, you know, so you have to have... I'm sorry, sorry what, year did, yeah. what year did Nigeria become independent? Uh, 1960. Okay, so yeah, it just ties right into the Windrush thing where I say the British Empire breaking apart. So uh, do you do you know from your family, how was it before independence, how mm -hmm. were the different tribes interacting? So, I mean, so so really before independence, there, there is there is a there is a there is a period from 1910 to before independence where the country itself is almost functioning as a country, but not independent. So nothing really changed after independence, rather than we can now have our own government without, you know, having a governor general, for example, from, from, from Britain. But prior to 1910, when it's called the amalgamation, I think it was 1910 or 1918, it's called the amalgamation. So this is when these tribes were really forced together into one national unit of government. Before that, the tribes were not really 
um, cohesive. Uh, you know, they were, you know, so the North had a lot of Arab influence, and with that came the uh, mission to Islamize mm-hmm. Africa. So there were a lot of raids from the North trying to um, subjugate the West and make them, you know, of Muslim uh, religion. And that was a, that was an economic thing. That was a religious thing. It was a cultural thing. So there was that. And then the East, you know, had a completely different attitude. They were, they were more really um, culturally aligned to a similar tribe in Cameroon. So, so you know, they have half of their people in a different country. You know, so they're trying to be more homogeneous with their folks, but they're being told, well. They're in a different country, so mm-hmm. there was, you know, so they, so so there was no real commonality between these groups, mm. and all of a sudden, because of the ease, yeah, of racism, and and Britain was just like, look, this is how we're gonna govern you guys because this is how easy it makes governing you guys logistically for us. Right. We're not gonna have three governor generals when we can have one. So we're not going to govern you guys separately. It just doesn't make any sense. So look, here's your governor general, and you're one country. Take it or leave it. Mm. So so the whole of 1918, or whenever the amalgamation was, up until 1960, was an experiment in how this nation would work. Mm. But after all, with this, with um. Like you mentioned in your previous episode, the weakening of the British Empire and, um, you know, the sort of Pan-African movement at the time, there was a period of temporary solidarity between the tribes. It's almost like, you know, that's my enemy and that's your enemy, so we're going to be friends to kick them out. So there was a period of solidarity where, okay, yeah, let's kick the British out. So, yeah, we're one nation. Yeah, okay, cool. So we kicked the British out, and it was great. You know, the 60s were great. The 70s were great. The economy was fantastic. Um, And all of a sudden it became, well, now they're gone, and we're back to our normal problems, you know. Well, look, we didn't get along before. Now we don't get along. We start fighting for resources. Um, so, yeah, so it, it's crazy. And then you, you then flash that around to, you know, you know the, the slave trade and, and moving, you know, tearing families apart. And, and by the way, this is not, I want to bring another, um, another aspect to this, right? Um, the, the, the influence of the British Empire cannot be underestimated in this whole thing, the way the world order is right now. That was actually great context. I, I didn't realize that, you know, the 60s sound like such a great decade. As I'm talking through the Windrush episode and, you know, really was talking to my parents and I've been, you know, I've been talking to my family a lot over the last year, a couple of years because of the DNA stuff, just getting some history and building my family tree. I really do think that there was, although we didn't have social media and people weren't as connected as is today, there really was a black movement going on worldwide that is not really spoken of. Like we know the civil rights movement, but with all of these countries, these black countries getting independence in the 1960s from the British empire, 
there had to be such this whole wave of pride and really feeling like you're on the brink of greatness and freedom because colonialism is another form of slavery. And so I like to always underscore this in this episode because African-Americans always think slavery only happened in America and it didn't. So I always feel like a West Indian person, I'm in between an African and an African-American because you in a Black country that didn't have the chattel slavery. And so there's a slightly different history. And the Caribbean, the West Indies, we we did, right? So it's the same nonsense that was happening in the US. However, the difference is that then the country became ours. You weren't a minority in right. the country, right? So that is where there's like that slight difference that mm-hmm. makes things, the experience unique. Colorism is very deep in Jamaica. So let me not act like, oh, they were free and everything was great. That's not what happened, okay? That's not what happened. <laughs> um, you then just had the lighter skinned or even Asians came in and kind of started running the countries, Asians and Middle Eastern people. Like it became what Jamaicans call assistant white. So you're not white, but you, <laughs> you're you kind of white, right? I, I, what I would call adjacent, white adjacent is what Jamaicans call it, assistant white. And so they're the ones who did it. And so Jamaica is very deep to this day, deep on colorism. And it would be very fair skinned people. People who are close to white who are running the countries had opportunities. And the vast majority of the black people are, are the poor ones. Sorry, I say I went on a tangent, but um, no, I... True. I, I say all of that to say that it, it's fascinating to hear about how the colonial British drawing lines to make a country is now forcing people who really are different groups of people to now work together. And then you're forcing it to be under one leadership when you're three very different groups. So where's your family from? The north, the, the east, the south? We're from the southwest. So, so. W- yeah, we just call it the west. So, yeah, okay. South, so yeah. I sent you a screenshot. I got my grandmother's results. They say she is from IMO. IMO. They said that's Okay. Where... So that's on the, that's on the south. That's the southeast. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, that's, that's, that's a very interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, IMO. IMO is, uh, okay, I'll just give you a quick... I mean, it's stereotypes, right? But um, this is how we in Nigeria sort of refer or or generalize each other, right? So um, people in Nigeria will probably be well familiar with this. So um, the the East, right, the the Southeast is... um, it's more of the economic center of the country mm-hmm. as far as um, business and innovation, technology. They're more, they're more entrepreneurial um, in nature. So if anything technology, uh, technological is going to come out of Nigeria, it's probably going to be from the eastern part of the country. Um, you know, they're, they're go-getters, in my opinion. And... Um, so that's sort of the general way, you know, obviously individuals are different, but culturally that's the, that's sort of how they're seen. And on the Western side, uh, where my parents are from, they're more of the ones, they're more of the academic ones, you know, they're the ones who want to go to school and become professors and stuff like that and spend like all their life in school. Um, they have, uh, you know, sort of, academic elitism to them, which um, is, you know, frankly annoying to a lot of people. But, you know, this is how they're seen. Um, And the Northerners, they're they're severely hampered economically because a lot of their land is being taken over by the expansion of the Sahara Desert. So, um, 
economically they are not that advanced. Um, they have to do a lot of nomadic farming, so they are more of the herders and farmers, and um, um, and, and a lot of them joined the military, for example. So um, so that's kind of how the country sort of broken out into. Um, but like you said, going on the colonialism, you know, this this forcing of these tribes really caused um, the Nigerian Civil War, for example, yeah. in in the late 60s. Um, there, there, uh, there was a civil war in in Nigeria, and and this is people look at Africa and say, you know, war-torn countries of Africa, war-torn regions of Africa, and they never really go beyond that to find out why why all these wars going on in in Africa, like the you know the the genocide, for example, in Rwanda, the the um, that killed a lot of people. That is that all of that can be traced back to the forcing almost into a pressure bubble of these tribes that historically were either rivals or just did not get along, and and bringing them together and forcing them to share resources, forcing them to to govern together, which they have not done historically. And you have to remember, before colonialism, these tribes have been, have had their way of lives for centuries. And over a period of 30, 40 years, they've been told, well, here is it, by a foreign power. This is how you have to live. This is how you have to uh, divide your resources, and you have to coexist. And there's always going to be a betting in period. And um, for the, I mean, like you said, independence, I mean, that's 1960s. My parents are alive. Like, it's not that long ago, right? right? And some of the legacies of colonialism will still continue for at least another 50, 100 years before that continent is going to be able to eventually settle in. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like you've made, a, a, you know, a cauldron of several ingredients, and you have to let it bed in, and and it takes time. So the 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 legacies of colonialism are far beyond slavery, like we see in America. It's actively going on in very many parts of the world, and yes, it, it's very multifaceted. It's very nuanced and it's very diverse, the effects of it economically, culturally, and even, like you said, the colorism thing, that, that's a great point because even in a continent that is quite homogeneous, like, well, it's not completely homogeneous, like, you know, they are the fair-skinned people of the Mediterranean and the northern parts of Africa. South Africa is pretty um, diverse because of, you know, the... Um, colonialism basically as well but um even in homogeneous mostly homogeneous countries there is still that stratification based on skin color it's weird but people don't think about it like people want to be you know like you know darker skin people want to be lighter you know they use they use skin um lightning products yeah where do you think all that psyche came from you know they weren't doing that before the colonial um, people came in. Um, it's the, the the infusion of the supremacy of the lighter skin is one of the lasting legacies of colonialism. It's not just on the white side of it. It's in the psyche 
of some of the Africans and people of African descent where subconsciously, I don't want to say they, they, don't, they don't believe it, like they don't say, oh, that guy is superior to me because he's white. But there is a somewhere deep down, culturally, it's so, it was sort of accepted and is still accepted in some parts of Africa where people you know, spend a lot of money trying to get this product. And, I think and, it's, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I think no, no. it's accepted and it's accepted all over the world with all people of color. India has the biggest skin lightening cream in Asia across the board. They have a huge market of skin lightening cream as Jamaicans very well known for bleaching their songs and their people. How many, look at Sammy Sosa, the Dominican. He was dark right. last year. Look at him now. <laughs> so this is, and if you hear American rappers, a lot of them, Puffy, all of them will talk about they want a light-skinned girl, they want a red bone, mm -hmm. that Kanye yep. only mixed. So this is deep in the psyche. So colorism is tied to racism. It's not the same thing. It's, mm -hmm. it's an offshoot of colorism, but we all need to acknowledge it. Some people acknowledge it more than others, but this is what's deep in the psyche of all people of color, black people too. And I, I can't even say us more than anybody else because Asians <laughs> are deep into colorism, very, very deep. Asians are very deep into colorism. So, you know, Indian, China, everyone is very deep into colorism. I lived in Japan for a few years. All of the creams you get, just like lotion, moisturizer, they have whitening in them. It's just a part of the culture. Some people will say, oh, well, before in Asia, it was because you were inside. So that meant that you were rich and the laborers were outside. I don't know if that's true or if we're just trying to rewrite history to make ourselves feel better. <laughs> but I know the one thing that is consistent in POCs and people of color across mm -hmm. the world is colorism. And this is, it's sad, you know what I mean? And, and it's still pervasive. So you're being nice about saying 50 to 100 <laughs> years. I honestly think it's the damage done by colonialism and offshoots of it, whether it be slavery, just imperialism, colors, they still have consequences in the world today. Oh, oh, Why absolutely. all of the countries like Latin America is a shit show. Why do you think it's a shit show? <laughs> you guys think it's a, by, it's just because what they're savages. That's not what it is. No. You know, this is all like Europe did all of this and then retreated home and left everyone to fend for themselves after they made a, a disaster, absolutely. you know, and then absolutely. there are things happening now. If you think about the World Bank and IMF, and I can say in the Caribbean and, and Latin America, where we're all forced to compete in is like very small countries and this global economy, how can Jamaica compete? You know, like it can't. There's what resources? It's a tiny little island. You can't do it. So we've now evolved from colonialism, imperialism, and the capitalist global structure also is still reinforcing those things. Absolutely. And and it's great that you brought up the World Bank and IMF. Um, that's similarly to, you know, to the Caribbean and Latin America. I mean, a lot of the economies in Africa are highly, highly dependent on on economic loans and assistance from the World Bank and from the IMF, but those come with very, very, very oppressive um, um, conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 you know, you have to function in the world market uh, based on rules and regulations that come with these economic loans that are mostly, you know, written by, you know, by Western countries and, um, you know, chief of, chief among them, you know, America and, and Britain. Mm -hmm. And, and, 
and those things still work. It's it's a it's a continuing economic subjugation that you know people don't really think about in colonialist terms, but it's it's essentially what is going on. And like you said, Europe cost the mess and retreated. That's exactly what they did because you know you've you've now set back these countries. You've gone there and ravaged them for economic resources, right? You've taken away you know you've 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 drained those lands of their resources diamond gold oil whatever it is and taking them back to the quote unquote you know empire and um you've now left these people you've brought diverse people together one you've depleted their resources two and then you've just up and left so now your economy is 150 years 200 years forward based on the depletion of Africa. And these African countries are now having to start their own countries with no economic resources, with no um, no real guidance on how to function in the world, in the new world order as far as the economics and technology is. And they're having to figure it out from the start. So they, they go like two, three years based on some of the processes and and infrastructure right that the colonial powers left behind and they go five years and maybe those infrastructures or technologies become dated and now they have to reinvent themselves and they just don't know how to do it and now they have to go back you know they have to go back to their colonial you know empires and say we need help you yeah. know you know, I, I w- but I would want to reframe it because I don't like to say that they don't know how to do it because the system is set up for you to go back, right? Like th- that's the whole intention. It's not set up for you to be autonomous and independent and thrive, right? That is not the point, right? The point is for the European nations, the the world's powers to remain in power and to do that, the system is rigged so that if you are from a developing nation, that developing nation can't ever catch up. That's not the point, right? Because if you could catch up, then you're competition for them. So you're forced into that. Like, you know, there's ingenuity. There, People know what to do. But if you're subject to certain rules in place the way they want them to do it, then you're always going to be at a disadvantage. So I can give an example. Uh, there's a movie. It's, I don't even know where you can find it. It's an older movie now. It's called Life and Debt. Uh, D-E-B-T, and it's about Jamaica. It's probably from maybe the early, late 90s, early 2000s. And it was talking about um, agriculture. So it's a small, Africa's very rich in resources. Jamaica's depleted, look, you know, they came for sugar cane and, and rum and molasses and then did very little. I mean, they did, they, I think there was a train, there was some infrastructure at some point and then they left. And I know plenty of people who, who from Africa have gone to Jamaica, like, oh my God, what's this? I'm from Africa. I'm like, I know, listen, just relax, <laughs> relax. It's, you know, uh, it's, you know, Jamaica is, and honestly, we can talk about another thing we can talk about the Chinese building up Africa in Latin America and the Caribbean, but let's pause that. But <laughs> I don't even want to talk about that because Jamaica's now has roads because the Chinese built them. So I don't want to even start that conversation because that's like a uh, long that's a whole, thing. Yeah, that's, that's the whole like, thing. 
But um, agriculturally, as England left, there there were still, you know, as being as the Commonwealth, you know, they would say, mm-hmm. all right, we'll take discounted bananas or something and we'll just get them from Jamaica or wherever. Some are former colonies because we were the mother country. And look, this is where America's fucked up. Okay, so NAFTA and all of these different bodies would say, wait, wait a minute, you can't do that. It's supposed to be free trade. It's free trade. So then they broke up this little thing where maybe Jamaica, maybe Trinidad could get uh, a, a preference where we could ship bananas and, you know, fruits to, to England and Europe and get a little bit of economic viability there. They said, no, it's free trade. So it's going to be the lowest, the lowest cost at the end of the day. So then now you're going to have Dole and Chiquita who say, well, why do I have to pay? It costs more to do it in Jamaica. I'm going to go to Guatemala and I, you know, mm-hmm. I can have worse conditions and, you know, and have children one cent a day. And so then you have all of these former colonies of poor people, black and brown people, fighting to try to play in this game that you can't play in because you know what? It's not even economically viable to be selling bananas and pineapples. Like it's not. And then now they're trying to do force supply and demand lower your prices. And so it's not something that's even something that you can do. And so right now, Jamaica is a place where most of the food is imported. Like their farming is not lucrative. So why would you do it? It's cheaper for them to get milk and meat and stuff that's not even from there than it is for it to be from there. I mean, what is that? Isn't that crazy? Like that's, (laughs) it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it is. And like you said, it's a continuing thing. Like, it's just, it's reformed, I guess, reformed colonialism. Like, it's more of an economic um, colonialism now. Um, and, and like you said, the, the, the system is set up um, for these countries to continue to be um, dependent on, this, on the far more advanced economies. And exactly. it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a while. It's going to take a lot of ingenuity and it's going to take a lot of struggle um for for it to for, for countries in in the caribbean and in africa to, to really advance and um you know like like you like you did mention earlier like it's like how do i explain it like when right after the independence like you said there was this wave of pride and wave of pan-africanism and unity and um, it's really, I'd like to go back and kind of study how that fizzled out, because I want to draw a parallel to what's going on right now in America, where there is, I'm always interested in how movements kind of fizzle out, or, or, or momentum, as it were, in, in the face of, you know, an event like we had in the States. And I am I'm someone that historically have seen that waves of unity eventually fizzle out when the the action doesn't come right. or or who you are protesting against or whatever the authorities at the time become smart enough to provide some sort of token gestures that are accepted at face value and everyone's like okay. They're going to do this. They're going to do this. They're going to do this. And yeah, we can take that. We'll, we'll, we'll step back. And if, if it doesn't happen, we'll come right back. But no one ever comes right back, right? 
no one ever really comes right back until it builds up again and gets to a head. So I don't know what your point of view is, and I'll be interested to hear what you think about this current, you know, sort of momentum that's building, and if you think it's going to last, you know. <laughs> Great segue. So Black Lives Matter has been in existence prior to 2020, right? Right. right. Um, and, you know, really, we saw them really come up, it was it four or five years ago in Ferguson and in Missouri after the killing of Mike Brown. And there's a couple of episodes, I've mentioned it, that this has been a buildup and because of really coronavirus setting the stage where people are home and have more time. Also, economically, there's a, you know, downturn with a lot of people don't have jobs because of the pandemic. And on top of that, in the United States and in the UK, but in the United States, Black people are disproportionately impacted by COVID dying and disproportionately out of work and on unemployment. The U.S. government only gave $1,200 to those who qualify as a one-time payment, although we're going into the fourth month here. So all of that buildup is in the background. Then you had Ahmaud Arbery, who was jogging and killed by not even cops, random people, a former cop, because he (laughs) felt like it. Then you have this woman in Central Park, who intentionally, she's Canadian. Right, I find that out. Yeah, last week, I was shocked. You shouldn't be. Canadian? She shouldn't be shocked. Don't be shocked. (laughs) So Amy Amy Cooper, who intentionally tried to use her white privilege to get a black man in trouble because Mm -hmm. he rightfully told her to leash her dog per the park postings and signs and rules. So you have all of this buildup of like, everyone, just everyone is frazzled and in this hard place because we're trying to deal with the global pandemic, a public health issue. But the one thing that doesn't pause, like the planes and the economy, the one thing that's pervasive and that thrives regardless is racism. So then on top of that, now you have the unfortunate incident with George Floyd over, you know, and I haven't said this part, but I'm going to say it here. He used a $20 bill in a store and the people I believe were Middle Eastern in the store who called the police because they thought he used a fraudulent $20. And that's not even proven that it was. And it probably was not. So let's talk about why are you calling the police because you think someone's using it? <laughs> what is that? Again, people weaponize the police against black people all the time. Then on top of that, you have four policemen kneeling and suffocating the man to death on video. And the only reason why there's any outrage is because it's on video. And listen, we've had stuff on video. It didn't make a difference. You know, it's just all of the adding fuel to the fire, adding fuel to the fire. And now it just exploded because you're telling me in a pandemic that can stop everything. We can't hold your racism for a little bit. You can't hold it. Yeah, it's 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 insane. It's it's um the actual the point I wanted to touch on that you just brought up was the idea of weaponizing the police. I mean that is that is another like that's another part of it's like you know it's like this it's like racism is a big mansion or maze and that is just another little section. Yeah. The idea of weaponizing the police. It's, I mean, the Amy, I mean, the Amy Cooper thing really, really, really shook me 
because if you listen to that video and and um trevor noah had a really good take on this i don't know if I you saw, saw it. it i saw it it, it, was, it was it was so it was so brilliant because essentially he said for you to be able to make that call you must be succinctly aware of your place in society the guy's place in society um mr cooper the the guy and how those states in society are perceived by the police. Mm -hmm. So you have to have that three-dimensional picture going in your head. It's as intentional a form of racism as any other thing you can do. Because she was not in danger. She manufactured a situation knowing fully well how the police were going to react. I mean, and this is something that I have been discussing with my white friends and this is something that I'm still not convinced about the answers I'm getting right which is the whole situation that oh you know we d we didn't really know it was that bad or wow you know oh wow you know wow I'm seeing all these pictures it's so evident now I can't deny it well what do you think black people were doing before lying making stuff up you know i'm i mean and i'm and i'm i'm glad that there is a lot more diversity to this cause now um the, the majority of the population is in there is a lot of buying which is great i'm happy for that welcome to the party right. but where were you people have been saying these things for years people and people just you know go about their you know, their lives, they're like, well, you know, why are you talking about this? Let me watch some sports, you know, turn the channel. Like, no, these are actual lives. So why the Amy Cooper thing shook me is that, well, you do know, actually, you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Because for you to make that call, you, you get the picture. You know, it's not a matter of, oh, you know, yeah, you know, it's bad, but it's, it's isolated incidents. It doesn't really happen that much, you know. But no, you know it happens because you know exactly when to tap into it. So there is an understanding there at the back of your mind that these, happen, these things happen. And she is taking advantage of that situation to make that call. So I'm just curious about why, you know, where is that disconnect? Like, like what flipped the script? Is it the, the, the video and how horrible it is? And it is a horrible video. But there, there are lots of other incidents that's happened, and you know, there were no videos. You know, there, you know, even even the statement that the um, Minneapolis PD released after after the incident, after the encounter with with Mr. Mr. Floyd, it's the most benign statement ever. Like, I'm like, are you serious? Like, these, you know, these police officers clearly were involved, like murdered this guy and the statement was so bland you know or, or have you seen the statement for Breonna Taylor as well so like for white America to say you know we're in now you know I see what's going on now I hear you I, I can I, I'm, I'm ready to listen is great and it's, I welcome it? it do you believe it um I, I tend to believe it because I'm um Maybe I'm just young and optimistic, but <laughs> I, I tend to believe it because I want to believe in the youth movement, right? I want to believe in the idea 
that the younger generation, the people who are out there protesting, um, really want really want to change in the direction that the country is going. So I want to believe that as I see it. Like I see pictures of the protest and it's just beautiful. Like it's a coalition of different colors and you know different people and and they and they're motivated and they're still protesting. You know, I mean there's still protests going on even though the media is sort of backed off of showing and because you know it's not as violent as it was and it's not headline grabbing which the media is a whole different topic but um I, I'm, I'm optimistic but um i'm just more looking back and saying if you have believed us before maybe things like this would we would have been further along the way towards making this better but I'm happy they're here now. I, hmm. <laughs> so I, I agree. That's the question. What were you hearing before? Because we've told you, black people all over the world have told you. There has been video, and I'd like to say that just in America, it's not just in America, right? But right. there have been tons of video. There was Rodney King in the early 90s. There was video. They were acquitted, right? So there have been mm-hmm. case after case after case. I've meant, you know, Amadou Diallo, it was about 1999-2000 in New York City. He was an African immigrant standing outside of his apartment door. The police, uh, he put his hands up because they told him to. They said he had a gun shot at him 40 times, dead. These are recurring stories of Black people all the time. And I've lived in predominantly white areas and I've always heard, oh, you know, it's just a mistake. They're scared, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So this time, I think it was just the backdrop of COVID and everything I said that made it like, it was hard to turn away and just disregard it like you normally would. You can't go anywhere because you're home. So there's, you, you can't just turn away. And people really took this to the streets this time and kept going. And the conversation, especially with Amy Cooper and everything that's happened, it yes, George Floyd and police brutality and police violence are how this started and are a big part of the conversation. But it really is about the systematic oppression, the systematic institutionalized racism and white supremacy that is still dominating this country. And like, when are we going to change it? And so the protesting... I do think it has brought attention. Now all of these politicians are saying that they're going to change these laws. Okay, Mm -hmm. sure, 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 sure. And (laughs) all of these corporations, Blackout Tuesday, are now taking into a marketing campaign. So I'm going to say, I'm going to caution everybody, you know, and I'm Mm. sorry to be Debbie Downer, but I'm going to caution everyone. Gwen can't help herself. This is different than the 60s, okay? Because of social media and the internet and technology, and the way social media works, this is also a marketing opportunity. This is a PR opportunity. People, we have social justice warriors. People want to pretend like I'm woke, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a big part of that where it looks good. There have been tons of pictures of influencers on social media going out to where the protesters are, stopping them to get photo opportunities, okay? Not to mention your president who did the same thing where he gassed peaceful protesters to get a photo opportunity (laughs) with the Bible. So we have this culture where we have to be able to break apart the truth and not, because it's a lot of illusion. All right. And so the smoke and mirrors. And so a lot of this quote unquote support is bullshit. It's just 
it looks good. It's going to get me clicks. It's going to get me likes. You know, there are white companies who are se selling Black Lives Matter merch. <laughs> you know, we need to be really careful about okay. saying, oh, everyone's behind us in Kumbaya. Because the work is beyond donating money. The work is beyond protesting. The work is in accountability and using your white privilege to stop your peers and your counterparts from perpetuating the system of racism. And that is hard because that's going to put you in a hard place that in your custom to live a comfortable life. And why should I do it? Because it's really not affecting you. So I, I think these protests are a step. I think all of the outpouring of money to donate is, is a step, but it's still not changing the behaviors, the psyche, and the system, and really making people accountable. And making accountable goes in multiple areas of life. I think I said this on an episode before. The police brutality piece, the violence piece, is the, mo is the clearest form of racism because it's so obvious. Someone in a, in a position of power and authority abuses it, and it ends up with someone losing their life. And they abuse it on a whim because they just feel like it because they have on the power trip and because they're racist and someone lose their life. It's pretty cut and dry. And honestly, that should be the easiest one to fix. We can't even fix it. But it should be the easiest one to fix because if someone is being accused of a fake $20 bill, there actually is no reason for you to be there. You should have gone <laughs> home. So you shouldn't even been there. There should have been no interaction. You should have actually gone and done some real police work. So it's kind of easy to fix that. If someone kills a black person because they see them jogging, you arrest them and you prosecute them to the full extent of the law. Those should be pretty easy, which would mean that the people in, in the town should be making their local government officials mm -hmm. accountable and saying, hey, in the town hall meeting, I saw this in the news. Why aren't these people arrested? All that. That is how you do it. That's not what's happening. So in your local town, you make sure that happens. It should be cut and dry and it doesn't even happen. So there's work to just do that. If you just enforce what the real rules are, we, this wouldn't happen. But you don't because it's the unwritten rules. It's the subversive racism that dominates society. And this is why people get killed. When we get to Amy Cooper, the Amy Cooper thing is more pervasive. That is just everyday life in corporate America, okay? That is everyday life of your doctor going to the lawyer, the library. That is where white people will leverage their privilege be in the wrong, but know that they're going to get over and be right and you can get in trouble or that they can not hire you or not pay you or not offer you, you know, the right medical treatment. It can be so many things where racism is pervasive. And that, again, requires you to be accountable to your counterparts and your peers and your family and push them to do the right thing. So that's more than just walking around in a mask in a protest. It just is. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, you're completely right about that. Um, my my sort of optimism was not um, extended to the corporate sort of wokeness that you've you're seeing around. I mean, that is just laughable, right? Like the fact that all these companies are on a dime doing these donations and public statements and I'm just like, come on, are you serious? For example, chief of all, the NFL, which is a complete mm -hmm. you know, basket case of an organization. Um, the, the fact that now they've decided, oh, we're going to donate 250 million over 10 years. Like, no, like, why are you changing now? The only reason you're changing now is because you probably have 
or PR department somewhere and they're running data and they've done polls and seen that public perception on these issues has changed. Exactly. So we better change with the time. It's all economic exactly. from their point of view. You know, what, what, what does our subscribing audience, what is their perception of this situation? If their perception is overwhelmingly this way, we'll go this way. They are not leaders. They are not doing it out of any form of goodness of their heart or any sort of actual foresight into what situation you're going through. It's just, they're just, you know, out there like a wind vane and they see where the wind is blowing and they just follow. Mm -hmm. So the corporate side of it, and which really is the adults, the older generation, the people who are in authority at this point, that section of society I'm completely pessimistic about. I, I don't, I, anything they do is purely from an economic standpoint, you know. So, but where my optimism is, is more with, you know, people, you know, 30, 35 and younger, maybe, you know, people in their 20s who are out there protesting. You know, these people, you know, for example, 2014, right, that's six years ago. This, uh, if, you're, if you're 20 now, Six years ago, you know, like when the whole Ferguson thing was happening, you were probably 14, 15. Like these, um, this generation has been brought up on a series of, you know, police brutality. They, they've been exposed, you know, through social media to a lot of the injustices that the police have perpetrated towards people of color. And they're outraged. And I've seen I've seen polls and data across this, and you know the overwhelming sentiment, even among the white population in that age group, is pretty strong against this against these injustices. So it's not really a surprise to me that the protest sort of population is very varied. It's varied in in racial class but it's pretty homogeneous in age range, right? So, um, but, so I'm not expecting anything, any changing on the dime out of the goodness of their heart from, you know, the, the actual generation in power now. Right. So that is where the, the other side of the coin comes in, right? You can protest, but you also have to be able to back it up by voting, you know, by taking, you know, your local like your, you know, your local town council, you know, paying attention to the polls that go on on the local level, because that's really where your every day, your day-to-day -day life is affected, right? Um, you know, your police department, you know, that kind of thing. It's not as glamorous. It doesn't, you know, it's not the presidential election or anything like that, but it affects you on a day-to-day -day basis. So that is where. The, the second side of the coin has to come in. The protests are great, and I'm glad we're here now. But like you said, we have to, we have to back it up by voting, by taking your town, your city um, elections more seriously. You know, for example, what happened with COVID, right? With COVID, you know, Trump was just like, well, the state governors, you know, figure it out. So now the importance of your state government the importance of your local government is amplified because there's no federal leadership. And the blueprint from Trump is whenever shit hits the fan, 
Well, I'm going to push it off to the governors and local governments. So those are the folks that we really have to, I mean, I'm not saying don't vote Trump out, definitely do that, but pay more attention to your local government, pay more attention to your state government, because those are the guys that actually, you know, do some of the, you know, rules and regulation, especially in policing, because policing is so city and state-based. Right. Like the federal government, the DOJ is just, well, Obama had a, DOJ sort of oversight commission that Trump completely rendered null and void. Yeah. So there is no real oversight on these on these matters, and that is the second part of it where the young people have to, you know, step up. Yeah. So no, definitely the voting and at the local level, you know, I've I've stressed that on this podcast before. It's super important. But I, I want to get to the social level. White people, you need to understand that your uncles, your aunties, your cousins, you need, you need to talk to them. You might be young, but you have to try to influence from your position, right? Because you hold the key. And I know it seems weird, like, what are you talking about? But microaggressions, the experiences of Black people are just so different that it's hard for you to realize that your uncle who makes those little off-color jokes and remarks at Thanksgiving could really be negatively impacting the life of a black person. Okay. So it really is do your due diligence voting, but have the hard conversation and check your family, check your loved ones. You can have a different kind of conversation with your white boss than I could. You know, it's just, it's just different because there is a comfort level and there is a privilege that you can utilize and exercise to help make others accountable in everyday situations and everyday things. Like say, just a small example, say you're going to an elevator, you're a white person, you see another white person, a black person comes in, say the person, the woman like tries to hide her purse, shifts her purse because, ooh, oh, you know, yeah. the black, <laughs> you call it out. Why does a black person have to call it out? You call it out, right? But pay attention. You got to pay attention too. And you can't say, oh, it's probably just, you know, she was just shifting her purse. No, <laughs> call it out. Those little things every day. It can't be us. You don't listen to us. You haven't been listening to us. When you are part of it, everyone's paying attention to Black Lives Matter because white people and non-black people of color have joined in. So... You guys have to also use your voice in everyday situations, everyday little microaggressions, things like that to make the point. You know, you have to put yourself on the line, too. That's what's going to change it. It mm. will not be from us. It just won't be. And I love the term, right, microaggression. It's such an, it's such an oxymoronic word, but it's, it's true, and, and you, you do see that. And, and, I, and this is something that I don't know if – if white people are acutely tuned into the microaggressions part, like not like the ones who are not actually racist, the ones that are just, you know, like they say now, it's not, it's not okay to be just not racist. You have to be anti-racist. Right. So you have to get to that point where your antenna is tuned in to these things, you know, like, like a black person walking down the street and, you know, people, people switch, you know, this is, before COVID, right? For, this is not social distancing right. related. This is just normal life. I'm walking down on one side and, you know, someone sees me and they go to the other side of the street, you know, right. or, or, you know, you're walking by a car and you just hear click, pump up, you know, they've locked their car, which is great. I mean, lock your car. That's great. But, you know, when certain things happen consistently over time, it's not 
it, there is a reason why it's happening. You know, like I, I'll share a story with you. Um, I went running a couple weeks ago, and on the trail that I run, the trail kind of narrows in between these two fenced houses, right? It really, really narrows down to really a one-person track. So I was doing a loop, and I came into this narrow part of the trail. And there was this older white lady um, coming in the opposite direction. And I thought, wow, this is such an isolated part of the trail. Like, I, I am afraid of any bit of interaction, however unlikely it seems that it might happen. And, it, and, and you might say it's completely irrational, but... I turned around and did the anti-clockwise loop because, I, you know, I'm just like as someone that has seen so many situations or read so many situations, you, you have to be extra vigilant of putting yourself in any form of situations that might cause any unwanted thing to happen. And it's crazy, but that is sort of a way in which some section of the black population has evolved self-preserve themselves basically um, yeah it's yeah exactly that's what it is so these are things that eventually take a mental toll over time if you think about it if you keep doing that every day you have to be like oh my god like what situation am I going to have to avoid today? How do I comport myself? You know, what do I wear to this meeting? You know, like all these things, you have to think about it. It's an on-running clock in your head. And this is how you function in, in America. But it's extremely exhausting. So like you said, it would be absolutely fantastic if, if white people can see this little microaggression situations and point them out you know uh, there is a there is there is a there's this very lovely video right of um of little kids um uh, one white little girl and one black little girl and they see each other and run across the street and give themselves a big hug it just shows you right that these behaviors are learned behaviors you know we a baby you know a one or two year old does not know that the other baby is of a different race, so I'm going to have to be careful around him. These are learned behaviors that come from things that kids see their parents doing, see their uncles doing. It might not be overt racism. They might not be calling someone the N-word, but little cues that they take from the way you know they refer to them or the way they treat them or little comments they make you know, or little, even instructions that they give their kids, like, you know, oh, be careful around him. What, what, what does that mean, be careful around him? You didn't say be careful around him against the other guy, so why him? So those little things, the, the, the culmination of all those cues build the person into who he is as he grows up, and then he, he, he starts to see the difference and starts to separate themselves. So a lot of it, like you said, is at home. And whilst the older generation might have dropped the ball, not all of them, don't want to generalize, may have dropped the ball on not passing on these cues, the young folks now who understand what's going on, who see their friends who are in this protest, it's time for them to, you know, do the reverse and educate their families, their loved ones, their uncles, their aunts, like, look, this is not right. At the place of work, this is not right. You didn't do that to me. Why are you doing it to him? 
we're in the same position. We, you know, we do the same work. Why are you scrutinizing him anymore? Like, if there is no actual reason, and you're doing it just off the cuff, that's something that is great to point out, and that's something that will help move things forward. So you're absolutely right on that. Yeah, and it is, you know. I don't think people understand the mental gymnastics that black people go through (laughs) on a daily basis. It is extremely tiring and it's something that you don't have to do as a white person. You just don't have to do it. And you're like, Oh, you're, you're exactly, we're not exaggerating. We're not, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes you have to believe we're just not, it's such a shared experience, you know, and I think just to bring it back, I, I do think, you know, I acknowledge that, yes, Black people, there are different groups of us, and due to history, there's different cultures, and and I understand that, and, and I recognize that, and they're beautiful, and everyone has a right to have their culture, preserve their culture, and has their own struggles in certain ways, but if we really intend to make a difference and change this world to be better for Black people, better for your children and grandchildren. It will really come by being unified. And I know that, you know, a lot of people with the ADOS movement, the American descendant of slavery, are very concerned about, you know, foreign Black people taking reparations and whatever else you guys are thinking. It's silly. It's silly, okay? There is strength in numbers. And alone, African-Americans are not able to do it. Caribbean, we're tiny little countries, no. Afro-Latinos, those who identify, no. Africa has the largest amount, but everyone's divided because of the tribes and all the history. Like, we honestly all need to emancipate ourselves from mental slavery mm-hmm. and learn to unite so that we have a unified voice. But it's hard, you know, and it's hard. And I think... This also contributes to some of us making the difficulty in making a change. It's like we're going up a mountain. A lot of times we have our communities on our backs. And a lot of you are trying to jump back down the mountain. You know, like, (laughs) so like we're trying to pull you up and trying Mm. to move things forward. But there are a lot of people who are fighting with each other and want to jump back down the mountain, want to go back into the barrel. And until we really get, I think, that pan-African mindset back we're going to have a challenge yeah no it's it's definitely you're definitely right but it's tough it's tough because every every little subsection of the black population has their own side struggle if you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so there's the overwhelming struggle of emancipation and progress of the black race but there is also you know your own little struggle like like you know like you said in africa the division and you know you know in in africa in the the african-american population you know the racism in america and so there there are so many sub facets of it so you have to sort of convince everyone that it's in their best interest to tackle the overlying factor and every other thing is going to fall into place and you know, that's the battle. It, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. But I, I agree. I think there's more power in unity. And there's there's a lot more commonality in the shared black experience than people have, have given thought to or opened their mind to. If If there is a lot more openness to look at it as one big problem, there might be a lot more 
progress in that regard. I agree. I agree. So, listen, it's been a while. This will be a long episode, but I appreciate you coming, Sam. Uh, do you want to shout out your social media where people can find you? Absolutely. So, my social media, uh, Twitter, I'm on TipSam. So, that's T I P P S A M underscore. So, TipSam. Tip is really my podcast project, which I'm still working on. It's going to be called the Idea Panel Podcast. And we're going to be discussing matters of race, culture, um, education, the media, technology, just how these things affect social structures and how we see ourselves in the community. And I'm really excited for that project. And um, yeah, and I hope um, I'll be back sometime to discuss this. I've been, you know, it's been a it's been a wonderful experience and it's been a pleasure talking to you. Likewise, thank you. So you guys follow Sam. And of course, I would love to be a guest on your podcast when you get it up and running. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're on the list for sure. <laughs> thank you. So it's been great. Definitely want to have you back. I Trust me, there's more things I want to talk about <laughs> because you're Nigerian. I have tons of things that I, just, I would love yeah. to talk to, to you about different things from a Jamaican perspective. I talk about 90 Day Fiance, which is this ridiculous show on, on this podcast a lot, but they've had different um, men from Nigeria who have married these older white American ladies for oh, like the green God. card. And <laughs> we've learned about Yahoo boys, which are supposed oh. to be all of these things. So. These are not the things that I want you to, <laughs> these are not the first impressions that I want you to have at all. But. <laughs> it's fine. Listen, Jamaica has a lot of, listen, I'm like, of course I'm 65% Nigerian because listen, Jamaicans have a lot of the same, very similar stereotypes oh. and behaviors as Nigerians. So it's not, so, so don't feel bad at oh, all. Fantastic. So love I it, would, I have a lot of hi, funny things to talk about. Funny well. things. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I get where you're coming from. So I'm looking forward to that. For yes. Sure. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Sam. Enjoy the rest of your day until next time. Take care. Thank you.